While it might be cheating because I'm putting out two episodes a week, I'm excited that we've hit double digits here on Monster Kid Radio. We are officially on episode number 10 of Monster Kid Radio. I am Derek M. Cook, your producer and host, and you are hearing right now from the Phantomatics the song The Good, The Bad, and The Mummy from their album She Left Her Brain at the Drive-In. It appears by permission of the band, and you'll hear it in its entirety at the end of the show. Now, this is part two of our chat with author, game designer, artist, and fellow Monster Kid, Stephen D. Sullivan. We're going to keep talking about the seventh voyage of Sinbad, Ray Harryhausen's influence on cinema in general, whether or not it's possible to show this movie to a modern audience that's been hit over the head with CGI graphics. It's just going to be a fun discussion. I had a lot of fun talking with Stephen. We're definitely going to have him back on the show. And remember, if you guys haven't listened to it yet, go check out the B-Movie cast because last Sunday's episode, he appeared on that show at the beginning of their Harryhausen tribute series. They kicked things off with the movie Earth vs. the Flying Saucers, which, well, I don't want to spoil the surprise. Not only do I thank Steve for being part of the show and you know bringing Harryhausen to the table, I also want to thank him for the artwork. If you go and look at the episode images for episodes 9 and 10 of Monster Kid Radio, the artwork minus what I put on there to indicate what show you're listening to and what the episode number is, is provided by Steve himself. He designed this artwork for the covers of some of his books. You can find out more about his books over at his website, stephendsullivan.com. Again, follow the link in the show notes. And I'm hoping that by the time this episode goes out, if you click on the links and podcast button of the website, you'll find links to all the various guests that we've had here on the show in the past, as well as different podcasts that are either supporting us, we support them, we've appeared on, etc. Something else you find on our website, you know it was coming, right? Our contact information, monsterkidradio at gmail.com is our email address, and our phone number for voicemails is 503-4795-MKR. Let's go ahead and dive into part two of our discussion with Steve about the seventh voyage of Sinbad and, well, pretty much all things Harryhausen, and I'll catch up with you on the other side of this. So... All of this attention to detail to the monsters and making them move and all that. And Harryhausen pretty much designed these as well. He didn't have a bunch of artists working with him, right? Right. No, he um, he designed the, the the sketches and worked with um, the model makers. Sometimes he sculpted himself. Sometimes he worked with other people in order to get the final sculpts. And usually there was someone else who was a machinist that did the armatures. The armatures are the, the skeleton that goes beneath the actual creature, which is then built up usually with some kind of polyfoam or foam latex, depending. I think these guys were some kind of foam latex, which sadly means all of them are gone. They've all rotted away in the interview. Right. Well, he reused some of his own armatures, too. So, I mean, even some of the stuff that, you know, it's just not out there. Like that Cobra woman you mentioned got reused as the Medusa in Clash of the Titans. So Right, yeah. And I think the, um, the, the armature for the Yimmer in the or the Emir in uh, 20 Million Miles to Earth was reused. It might have even been in the Cyclops. I think I read that somewhere. Later on, yeah. That, that didn't come up in the research I, I checked over this morning. But yeah, so they would reuse them, but one of the reasons was these things literally would disintegrate from from use and hot lights and that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. So the only, the only one of these creatures that survives is the skeleton from the skeleton fight that survives whole and intact. And that one, I think, was one of the ones that Harryhausen built up by hand by himself using, um, oddly, it was like some form of cotton wadding and, right. and uh, some kind of uh, epoxy and that that kind of thing. Well, so. I asked about the design, and I mentioned the Medusa because 
Clash of the Titans is the only Harryhausen film that I've seen on the big screen. I saw it when it first came out, and that movie messed me up. Uh, <laughs> the poster actually gave me nightmares before I saw the movie. I saw the poster, and I saw the Medusa on it, and I had nightmares about that poster coming to life and that Medusa coming out and chasing down a little Derek to try to do whatever it is the Medusa is going to do in the movie because I had no idea, but it terrified me. And then when I saw it in the movies, I mean, it was also pretty impressive. I mean, it's, you know, I was, I was a young kid, you know, when I saw it and it, it was, it, it messed me up, man. <laughs> and it's, it's one of the great special effects features in any movie ever. And it's, I, you know, it's both wonderful and, and sad that that Medusa sequence specifically is kind of Ray Harryhausen's swan song in movies. It was the last, the last thing that he did was Clash of the Titans, and that was one of the last sequences that he worked on. It's a sequence, even though he had some assistance in Clash, that one is his. And he brought all of his experience and all of his attention to detail and patience to that sequence, and it shows. It's mm-hmm. brilliant. Yeah, it really Just, is. I mean, I, I've got that on DVD, and I can pop that in. And, you know, some of the acting's a little creaky now. You know, Harry Hamlin as Perseus is a little little rough sometimes, especially yeah. knowing what he would do later, you know, in the L.A. Law stuff and all that. I have a hard time reconciling that in my brain. Right. But, uh, you know, that— Even at the time, I wasn't—it was like, oh, this guy's not really—I'm not really buying him right. as Perseus. But I think that the— Sadly, there was a, some of the mythology elements don't work as well in the film. Uh, the human elements, the creatures are great. Oh, yeah. The human elements in that film are not as convincing to me as in most of his previous films. Right. I um, mean, he's certainly no Kerwin Matthews. He's no Kerwin yeah. Matthews, uh, you know, and he's not as good as most of Harryhausen's other leads. The, uh, the, only, the other bad lead is that occurs to me is Patrick Wayne, who was in the, the last, the eye of the tiger, Sinbad and the eye of the tiger, who I don't think is a particularly good Sinbad. Now there, uh, the, the movie's a lot of fun. Now there are three different Sinbad films and, and Harry Housen was involved in all three. Uh, well, he was involved in three. There are many Sinbad. Well, films, okay. He was, the three he, he was involved with our seventh voyage of Sinbad, uh, golden voyage of Sinbad, and then Sinbad and the eye of the tiger. And he uh, produced on some of these. And didn't he, like he kind of co-wrote Seventh Voyage himself, right? The way most of these films were done were was they were arranged around. He was working with Schneer, who was the the producer of the films, and co-produced most of them. And he and Schneer would get together. Basically, they would usually originate with some idea that Harryhausen had. He would have the ideas for the uh, three or four action sequences involving monsters in Seventh Voyage. And then he would, he and Schneer would talk them out, and then they would hire writers to come in and help them develop them. The two of them, he and Schneer, were intimately involved with pretty much every stage of the production, right from the beginning till the very end of all the films that they did together. And they did, I, I don't know how many, but it from very early on uh, in Harryhausen's career, right to the end of his career, pretty much these two guys worked together, and they would essentially work the stories around the action sequences that Ray was interested in, which was usually how they'd sold the movie to the, to the studio as well. Ray would work up production drawings. His, he draws beautifully, you know, and when I was a, a monster kid thinking I might go into animation and, and I'm an artist too. I, I can't hold a candle to this guy. He was, he's a brilliant draftsman. 
you know, as well as having the ability to sculpt these creatures, which he did sometimes. And there are Ray Harryhausen sculptures that you can buy online for too much money, <laughs> at least too much <laughs> for me. <laughs> and so he, he, he kind of brought the whole package to it. And using those skills, they would sell these, these film backing for them. And it's, it's kind of amazing. So a lot of the stories, yes, were created around his ideas. Okay. Now, Ken Kolb is also, was the credited writer of the film, and I'm assuming he and, and Harry Housen kind of put this story together, like you said, based around, you know, the, what Harry Housen was going to bring to the table, the Cyclops, the dragon, the rock, you know, a skeleton fight and that sort of thing. He just kind of created the, the story around that. Yes, essentially. And I think this yeah. one, uh, as I was reading about it this morning, they actually had two or three writers that came in and, and worked on outlines and that kind of stuff before they finally settled settled on the the uh, the guys that they they eventually had Ken Kolb and I, there might have been one other guy that got screen credit I don't remember don't remember who it is off the top of my head Do you know much about the director Nathan Geron? I I honestly don't you know I mean we could click on IMDb and maybe bring up a couple of other things he's done It's funny you know when people talk about Harryhausen films it's a Harryhausen film. You kind of think he's the director, but he's actually the special effects director. So in these films, he was on the set a lot of the time. Oh, I bet, yeah. He had to direct. He had to tell the actors what they were seeing. And he had what, what he called a monster stick, <laughs> which was a literally a stick. <laughs> the height of whatever monster they would have. And apparently he painted this stick in various kind of stripes. It was like this stripe would be, or color would be the head of the monster. This would be its torso. This would be its feet. So he would stand on the, on the stage with and work with the director and work on the sight lines for the monster because you want your, your people, in order to be convincing, you want your people to be looking at the right pl- place of the monster. You don't want him to be looking at his shins instead of his eyes, unless the shins are what you need in the shot. Right. Mm-hmm. So that they would, uh, he would come in and kind of, in a sense, you know, and I don't want to get in trouble with the way Hollywood doles out credits, but in a sense, he was co-director. Oh, I'm sure. A, a lot of these pictures, a lot of these pictures. And I did uh, pop up Nathan Duran and he also worked on 20 million miles to earth. Right. And Jack, and- the giant, Jack, the giant killer. And First Men of the Moon, both yep. both of those two were with Harryhausen, yeah. as well as Attack of the Fifty Foot Woman is the other one that that springs right. Well, and that's what I was going to mention. You know, Attack of the Fifty Foot Woman and the Deadly Mantis. So he's had some experience with directing humans against big things. You know, <laughs> yeah. yeah, right. Whether you know whether cheesy cheesy ones is an Attack of the Fifty Foot Woman or or fairly good ones is in the Deadly Mantis. I mean, those are that's a pretty good filmography. For anybody, you know, sure. I, I love films. All of those films were a lot of fun. Well, and so. he's got a little agar on him with brain from Planet Eros. So, well, there you go. You know, he just went up in my book. <laughs> <laughs> I need to rewatch that. I haven't watched Brain from Planet Eros in a good long while. Right. So it's it's not going to replace Sinbad on my top five list. Oh, I, I don't, I don't. Yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't go that far. I mean, I like John Agar, but that's not one of the top for me either. You know, as far as the seventh voyage of Sinbad goes, I'm glad that you brought it up to talk about because it's not something that I've seen in a long time, and it's, it's got some iconic monsters in it. It's not a horror movie. It's got some scary moments. But it's not a flat-out horror movie or, or anything. It's a fantasy adventure. You can certainly see its influence on 
you know, fantasy film. You know, we mentioned Raimi and Army of Darkness, but then Raimi also did the Hercules, Hercules and Xena stuff. So right. you can kind of see that sensibility creep into it. Maybe not the monster effects, but the sensibility, the storytelling, you know, creep into that as well. Anytime you see a skeleton fight in anything now, it all goes back to this film. Mm-hmm. And there have been plenty of them since. And not a, There's been Raimi. There were some actually even in Hercules and Xena. Oh, were there? So, yeah, there were at, at least one, as I remember. And there have been sci-fi movies, and it all goes back to this film. And then from this film, Jason and the Argonauts, which Harry Hausen did as well, which if one skeleton is good, mm, five or six, even better. Yeah, right? <laughs> Do you think this movie would play well today with people who are so used to, you know, CGI and they know the, the spe- how special effects are done, that sort of thing? Have we kind of lost the ability to kind of get lost in a movie like this? You know, it's really hard to say. I like to think – I did actually show this movie um, – I show movies uh, once a month usually at the, the church that I go to on because we've got a big screen. And I, I did show this on the big screen fairly recently, and people enjoyed it. The kids enjoyed it. Now, I think sometimes you have to preface it with the, remember, when you see this, this was done before there was CGI. The first time I showed my son, who's now 18, the first time he and I watched the original Star Wars, the original one, not the juiced up one, <laughs> the original one. <laughs> not the one on performance enhancing drugs? Right, okay. not the one that he went in and, and retouched, but the original one when they brought out the original one, so you could see that see it the way that I and maybe you originally saw it in the theater. Mm-hmm. I said to him, "Remember, right before we started, remember this film was done before they had CGI and computer graphics." And because I said that to him, he went through that film with a sense of awe. The first time the speeder is zooming across the landscape on nothing, there's nothing below it. He he was like turning to me and going, how did they do this? Because you become so used to the computers being able to do anything. If you tell someone there are no computers in here, then that sense of wonder comes back to people and it becomes magic, real screen magic. And I think with the proper setup and the proper audience, I think this... This film, I think, is stronger than most any of the fantasy films we have today. I think in terms of taking you on an adventure ride, yeah, it's not going to send you down the roller coaster the way the new Hobbit film will or or some of the other things that are so obsessed with motion up and down and that kind of stuff. But in terms of the characters, in terms of the story, in terms of taking you to a fantasy world, I think this film outshines pretty much everything on the screen today and i think i think with proper understanding and just a little bit of explanation people can understand that when you say to them remember this is before cgi then the first thought they have is not oh this doesn't look as good as cgi the first thought they think is how did they do that and when you say to them you know how you see five minutes of credits for the special effects on star wars the special effects on this movie that you're watching now were all done by one guy. If that doesn't instill a sense of awe in you, well, maybe you should stop watching movies. (laughs) (laughs) 
That's pretty powerful because you're absolutely right. It goes back to what we already talked about with the, uh, you know, one guy slaving away making this happen. There are no computers to make all this happen. And it's, it's definitely impressive and, and something that I'm glad, that, like I said, that you brought it up because it gave me an opportunity to, to revisit a movie that I had seen once or twice before and just kind of filed away. And, you know, you kind of get a little jaded, you know, being movie fans and having watched all this stuff, especially now with computers and everything, mm-hmm. you kind of forget. You know, this is how the special makeup was done or how the special effects were pulled off. And I mean, there's some impressive stuff in here. I would put that Cyclops against, you know, the Rancor from Jedi. I would put that Cyclops against, you know, anything in like the Clash of the Titans remake. You know, that Cyclops is just an iconic beast. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's something that even if you don't know what it's from, there's a pretty good chance you've seen it. Yeah, and I think Rumorg Magazine even put on its cover a little bit ago. So, I mean, it's it's definitely part, or at least needs to continue to be part of the lexicon when it comes to talking about monsters. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Now, being one of your favorite movies, it's obviously influenced you know your work. Oh, yeah. You know, as a creator, as, a, as a, you mentioned, you were thinking you were going to be an animator, and you mentioned art, and I know you as a writer now and a, and a game designer. I mean, I, I just imagine you and the guys sitting around TSR talking about your favorite Harryhausen moment or your favorite Sinbad moment. Is that close to the truth? Yeah, there was some of that, certainly. And and as I mentioned earlier, going up and seeing seeing the movies, seeing the iconic movies, the fantasy movies, was part of the experience of being there. But some of it is, it just, it gets under your skin after a while. You know, that it's something you, you don't maybe need to talk about as much because it's something, it's a common experience you've all shared mm-hmm. and you all have that love of it. And it, and it shows up in your work in little, you know, little tributes here and there or, or scenes that have been influenced by it. So sometimes you don't even need to talk about it. Sometimes you just, you just know it's there in the, you know, in the same way that uh, people working in the special effects industry, I think they'd be shocked if you didn't know about seventh voyages and bad and Jason and the Argonauts, mm-hmm. and you were working in special effects. It's just kind of, it's taken for granted. Mm-hmm. And it, it may just show up in the way that you construct sh- stories and, and your love of, you know, can you have a and d game without monsters? <laughs> I don't think it's, you could. And I've, I've played D&D games where it was entirely based on buying and setting up tenement hotels. But... <laughs> Wow. It's not, the same. See, it's we, not the same kind of game. We called that Monopoly, but I don't, you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, you mentioned the D&D gaming, you know, and I, I used to play D&D all the time growing up. My creative writing teacher actually taught me how to play, and I was hooked ever since. And I would always play music during my gaming sessions, and I had, you know, a, a fantasy music compilation album with the music from this film thrown in there. And I had forgotten that this was the music from this movie, this Bernard Herrmann score, which is just fantastic as it is. I can't believe we haven't mentioned it up tonight. We we got to talk about it because uh, Harryhausen wanted somebody else wanted uh, Miklos Rosa. He wanted Rosa, yeah. who later did the Golden Voyages in Bat, or Max Steiner, who did King Kong. I think those were his two, which would have been great choices. I mean, they they Absolutely. are fantastic composers, and I've got plenty of music by them on my iPods. Yep, and, and I said iPods because I need more than one to keep my music collection <laughs> going. But uh, you know, the score for this, the Bernard Herrmann score. Herman, I know from his Hitchcock connection, right? You know, and, and his background with with Psycho and things like that. But I think Herman is the greatest film composer of all time. Whoa, really? <laughs> I do. Wow. And all you have to do is look at the films he worked on to know how good he was. And that starts with Citizen Kane, and it ends with Taxi Driver. 
and in between you've got Harryhausen and you've got Hitchcock and you've got a, just an amazing array of film music. And if you if you were in the studio where I am sitting right now and were to look at the soundtracks that I write to all the time and look at the little shelf that's above my computer here that holds the ones that I use constantly, you would discover that Bernard Herman takes up a huge chunk of that shelf. And in fact, I was obtaining new ones I didn't have before. Just this last month, I got uh, two different uh, soundtracks from uh, from Mysterious Island, which is also by Bernard Herman. And this soundtrack is an iconic one. It's one of his best, I think. It is good, and it's it's a little out of the box for him, at least in terms of my experience with Herman, uh, because like I said, I know Herman from his Hitchcock, you know. Mm-hmm. So, you know, even some of the the lighter Hitchcock, like the Trouble with Harry, right. but I, I still know him from his Hitchcock work. So, to hear the kind of bombastic adventure fantasy thing right. going on and what we're hearing here, it blew me blew my mind to realize this is what this is the same guy, right? Uh, and it's it shows his range for sure. And that's one of the reasons I think he's the best film composer of all time, because this he was actually creating new sounds for this motion picture. He was creating new ideas, new ways to use percussion, especially in this this film and the the xylophones in the fight with a skeleton and all this other kind of stuff. It's very, as you said, it's very bombastic. And yet, but only when it needs to be, only when it needs to be. He doesn't go overboard. And at the same time, there's this wonderful lyrical love theme that runs through it at times as well. There's there's a combination of different sounds that's just the as you said, the range is amazing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's you mentioned the xylophone with the skeleton sequence. You're right. I can't think of a skeleton fight sequence in a movie without hearing in my head that that xylophone kind of sound as if somebody is you know taking the xylophone hammers and banging them on the ribs of the skeleton. You know, I can't separate those two sensory images for me right right yeah and it's it's kind of amazing that uh in retrospect harry hausen was thinking that other people would be better for this film because i love steiner and i love rosa and if you look up at that same shelf where uh where bernard herman is you're going to see a lot of those two guys on that same shelf of inspirational music but i can't i can't imagine now either of those other two guys doing this score and doing it as well as Bernard Herrmann did and contributing as much to the atmosphere as us. It's, it's iconic. That's one of the things about this film. And one of the reasons it's on my list is that it's an iconic film. And it, because of that, it's so deeply in my conscious and my subconscious, it's changed my life. The films in the top five of my list are films that in one way or another changed my life. And this one is there. And it's just to not to cut down another Harryhausen film, which is also as good in, in most ways and better in some. It's on this on my list instead of Jason and the Argonauts, because Jason and the Argonauts doesn't actually have an ending to it. <laughs> I don't know if we want to talk about that, but uh, if you've seen Jason and the Argonauts, Jason actually, in the middle of the film, he's going off to gain the Golden Fleece so he can go back and regain his his kingdom from the evil guy that's overtaken it. But the film ends right after Jason gets the Golden Fleece. We never actually see him return home 
and resolve this other conflict. And while I love Jason, and it's a, a nearly perfect movie the way it is, for me, it doesn't have an end to the story, whereas this film, with special effects that are just as iconic, does. It's definitely a good film. And, and Steve, I want to thank you for spending some time with me to, re- to talk about it and for helping me put it back to the forefront of my brain, you know, dig it out of the cobwebs in the back of my mind and, and bring it forward. And I just remember how, how much fun this movie was the first time I saw it. So I appreciate you bringing that to the table here at Monster Kid Radio. Well, you're very welcome. I'm glad I could do that for you. It's a film I never get tired of seeing, like, like King Kong. This is a film I can just watch anytime it's on and enjoy a piece of it or the whole thing. Excellent. Now, we mentioned this at the very beginning of our talk uh, earlier. You are a writer. You have works online. People can find out about you by going to your website at stephendsullivan.com. Yes. And that's Stephen with a PH. Yep. Okay. Or if you're feeling lazy, you can just type sdsullivan.com. It'll <laughs> end up at the same place. All right. So people can find you there. And you are an occasional guest host on the B Movie Cast. Yep. And do you have any other appearances online people should be aware of? If you search around enough, I ran a, a radio show called Uncanny Radio with my friend Linda Godfrey, where uh, it was uh, we'd talk to people about werewolves and Bigfoot and that kind of stuff every week. For we did uh, a year of those, which turned out to be 42 episodes. Some of them are still up online. We're talking about putting more of them up online, but I don't have any regular gig per se. It's just uh, working with friends like you and and Vince and Mary. Uh, and I love doing podcasts. I love talking about movies. So well, we should definitely have you back down the line. Yep. And you can always find my new books. I'm coming out with new books all the time. The newest series I've, I've got up is Tournament of Death. So, and almost all my, a lot of my stuff is fantasy and a lot of stuff is obviously influenced by this movie. There was even a, a book that I dedicated to Ray Harryhausen and Stan Lee called, uh, Warrior's Bones, which was the last book in a trilogy I did for Dragonlance. Fantastic. Well, tell you what, listeners, when Steve D. Sullivan has a new book come out, I'll ask him to drop me a line, and we'll make sure it's over at the Monster Kid Radio website, at least a link back to his website. You guys can keep up with what he's doing. And like I said, Steve, we're going to have you back. Anytime. I, I love doing this. This is great. I want to try a new segment here on Monster Kid Radio. I'm calling it the Classic Five, where I'm going to ask five questions, typically a yes or no or pick your favorite type question, regarding classic monster movies. And as our first guinea pig, I've got my good friend Scott, who is the co-host of Disney Indiana with his wife Tracy and my co-host over at 1951 Down Place. How are you doing, Scott? I'm doing good, and thanks for letting me be the first in this really nice chair you've got here. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, don't it is get a, too comfortable. It is a little warm, but... I was testing it out earlier. <laughs> All right, so here's how it works. I've got a list of questions here. I'm going to pick five randomly. I'm just going to shoot them at Scott. And you just got to pick your answer, man. Don't think about it too hard. Just whatever comes to the top of your head, All right. All right, I got Google ready. Here we go. Question one. Favorite Bella Lugosi role? The Dracula. Twilight Zone or The Outer Limits? Twilight Zone. Favorite Phantom of the Opera actor? I have never seen Phantom of the Opera. Lon Chaney Sr. or Lon Chaney Jr.? Jr. Favorite Ed Wood film? Plan 9 from Outer Space. There we go. Thank you for playing, Scott. (laughs) You win nothing. (laughs) I got nothing to give you, man. I got no... I I was trying to come up with something funny. I got nothing. (laughs) Tell people where they can find you. They can find me at uh, either 1951downplace.com or DisneyIndiana.com. 
and a future episode of Monster Kid Radio, where we're going to be talking about Earth versus the Flying Saucers. And then uh, maybe something on down the road as well. Definitely. We'll definitely have you back more than once, brother. Thank you. So I watched two movies this past week. I watched Things to Come, which just came out on Blu-ray, courtesy of Criterion, not too long ago. I'd never seen this movie. It's a science fiction movie from 1936. It's a film based on a novel by H.G. Wells, and according to what I've seen online, seems like Wells may have had some involvement in the production itself, which isn't typical for a screenwriter, especially, I would think, for the 30s, but then I, I don't really know. Things to Come is an intriguing movie with an intriguing story. It takes place, like I said, in 1936, and it begins before this decades-long war that takes place. It starts in the 40s or so and then lasts through, well, around the 70s or so, and, and it predicts a lot of things that we would see in the real world. I mean, it talks about you know, gas being used in war, and there's this war that takes place in the 40s, like World War II, and, you know, even the science fiction, futuristic stuff, there are flat-screen televisions, and imagery that I would see later in other films, and I don't know if it's fair to say that Star Trek took some visual cues from some things that happened in this film, but it's possible. There are some airplanes that look a lot like the Klingon's Bird of Prey, or maybe more specifically, the Romulan Bird of Prey from Star Trek, which, again, fascinating to me. On top of that, you see some hologram communication, which is similar to what we would see in some of the Star Wars films. So, again, these are things that may or may not have influenced later science fiction products. It's a fascinating film, and it looks amazing on this Criterion release. This Blu-ray is packed full of special features that I have yet to check out myself, but the movie, just it looks really good. And the special effects for the time, the model work, the Blu-ray high resolution does not make these models look bad or cheap. You can tell that some real care went into making this world work. And the high definition does not show the seams or the strings or anything like that. It makes it feel like a more modern movie than it really is. I mean, I wouldn't say it's a movie released today. It's still dated in some aspects regarding its acting and its, and its performances and some of its dialogue. The camera work, however holds up. There's a lot of moving camera shots. There's a lot of montage editing that makes it feel more of maybe the 40s or 50s than the late 30s. It's a fascinating film. I highly recommend y'all check that out. Now, the other thing that I checked out not too long ago, this is a double feature release from Mill Creek Entertainment. We love Mill Creek Entertainment here at Monster Kid Radio. They do a great job when it comes to putting out movies at a really affordable price. The one thing that I wish you would see more with these guys is special features. But, you know, that's not the business they're in. Their business is putting out as much product as possible. And they did this double feature release of Brotherhood of Satan and Mr. Sardonicus. Now, we're going to talk about Mr. Sardonicus because that's really more in the wheelhouse here of what we do here at Monster Kid Radio. This is a Blu-ray release. They have been upconverted. There's not been a lot of remastering done here, but the Mr. Sardonicus print looks really good. It's clear. It's crisp. It does get a little speckly if you get right up on the screen, but for the most part, it is a good, crisp print, and it sounds fantastic, especially when it comes to the voice of Mr. Sardonicus himself. Most of his dialogue is delivered from behind a mask, 
but they went to great lengths to make sure it sounded good. And when I say they, this could be Mill Creek or this could be director William Castle himself. Yes, this is a William Castle release, complete with the William Castle introduction at the beginning of the movie, telling us what the definition of a ghoul is, because Mr. Sardonicus will deal with ghouls. Now, this movie doesn't seem to have a lot of the gimmicks that William Castle would be known for. It doesn't have the Tingler thing going on. I don't see where they could have made skeletons rise from the seats or the screen of the movie theater. It's just a straight-up gothic horror story. In fact, it feels more like a Hammer film than a typical Castle film. Now, there are some moments that are extremely non-Hammer, probably more Castellian or American than Hammer, but... It seems like this movie would play well as a double feature with a Hammer film, or maybe even as a double feature with the original The Old Dark House. The story does involve a doctor going to a castle and getting involved in the mystery that's happening there with the ghoul and a woman who's tortured and this creepy assistant guy that kind of wanders around answering to the master, Mr. Sardonicus himself, a long-lost love. It's a fascinating story. I actually really enjoyed the movie. This was the first time I'd ever seen Mr. Sardonicus. It makes me curious about diving more into William Castle. I know at one point when we had Devin Dever on the show, we talked about doing some William Castle films. I think we might need to do a William Castle series here on Monster Kid Radio down the line. This is a great Blu-ray release. It's a double feature. It's less than $10. So it's not going to put you back to get two movies, one that is really good, into your movie collection. So check that out. Like I said, it's less than 10 bucks. And that's going to do it for this week's episodes of Monster Kid Radio. Big thanks again to Stephen D. Sullivan for joining us here on the show. And big thanks to Scott Morris, who participated in the very first Classic 5 segment. Scott is going to be in next week's episodes, in which we talk about Earth versus the Flying Saucers as we continue our Ray Harryhausen series here on Monster Kid Radio. You can find out more about what we do over at our website at monsterkidradio.net, where you can find links to everything that we've talked about here on the show. Monster Kid Radio is a registered service mark of Monster Kid Radio, LLC. All original content of Monster Kid Radio by Monster Kid Radio, LLC is licensed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivations, 3.0, unported license. That, of course, does not extend to the song The Good, the Bad, and the Mummy by the Phantomatics from their album She Left Her Brain the Drive-In, which appears with permission from the band. See you next week. <laughs>